Springs arrived here in Nashville and it's just beautiful. The dogwood is blooming in the backyard. The lilacs are just about to burst open and the Jedi viburnum is blooming. And if you've never smelled a Jedi viburnum, you really need to find one and smell it. It's an amazing smell. I have one that I brought down from Indiana planted underneath the bedroom window. I wake up in the morning and you can smell that coming in. And it just takes me right back to my tree planting days in Indiana. And the nursery where I worked, when the Jedi viburnum were in bloom, I would go out and walk through the field where they were planted. It's just about as good a feeling as I can remember. And when you're standing out in this field, and it'd be 7.30 in the morning, we hear the birds singing in the background, smelling the Jedi viburnum, just stand out there with my eyes closed, taking it in. There wasn't a damn thing wrong with the world. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville on a beautiful spring day. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's a creative individual and the person experiencing it. Everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Bob Mayer. Bob is a music journalist who writes for the Memphis Commercial Appeal. He's a longtime contributor to Mojo. He's written for Village Voice, New York Times, and Chicago Reader. You can find out everything you need to know about Bob at replacementsbook.com. Bob has written this wonderful book called Trouble Boys, The True Story of the Replacements. And I think you guys will really enjoy it, and you should check it out and pick up a copy, hopefully at one of your local bookstores. But Bob was visiting here in Nashville. He's from Memphis, but he was in town for a couple days, and he was nice enough to meet up with me over at Fond Object here in East Nashville. And we went into a back room, and he shared a whole bunch of stories about the replacements. And he's a really, really smart guy. You know, he knows what he's talking about, and he was really fun to be around. The Replacements had this really interesting relationship with Nashville, and I asked Bob if he would tell those stories, and he was nice enough to do it. So there's a lot to get to, and I think you guys are going to enjoy this. Here's Bob Mayer. So the Replacements got together, formed in December of 79. They were really signed by Twin Tone by May of 1980. But it would be about three and a half more years before they'd really tour beyond the upper Midwest. Uh, they'd played one gig in Kansas, but mostly they were doing Minneapolis, Duluth, Chicago. was about as far as they had gone. Uh, and the main reason was Tommy Stinson was still in school, first in junior high and then in high school. He got to about uh, middle of 10th grade and quit high school, and that allowed the replacements to go on their first national tour, first East Coast tour anyway. That's when they played uh, Folk City in New York and the Rat in Boston and 
you know, Detroit and did all that for the first time. So it was partly uh, out of necessity or, or they were limited by Tommy's situation before they could tour. So it was, that was April of 83. The picture on the cover of your book, Tommy <laughs> looks like he's 13 years old there. At that point, he would have been maybe, th- he could have been 13, probably was 14, but could have passed for 11 or 12 too, you know. April of 83, that was their first tour, first time out. And it, Tommy quitting school really freed them up to begin their ascent nationally to start making it out to the East Coast, West Coast. But um, in the summer, I believe, of 83, they came south for the first time and they played in Nashville. Um, And that's one of my favorite stories. In general, the replacements being fish out of water anywhere was always an interesting uh, set of circumstances, particularly as they came to the South. And as, as Paul said, you know, when they went to New York for the first time, that was the first time any of them had been to New York. As he put it, Duluth was still exotic to us. So uh, they were everywhere they went, they were experiencing it for the first time. These were not well-traveled guys in their personal life. And when they came south for the first time, I think from the first moment to the last, it was always a case of fish out of water. And they both thrived on that and reacted to that feeling like sort of outsiders culturally, because they were uh, in their own way, very much subject to their regional identity. They were very Northern, very Midwestern, very, you know, Scandinavian to some extent in their roots, uh, Catholic, mostly blue collar, very Minnesotan. And they had their own heavy accents. So now they're coming to another part of the country that has its own heavy accents. And, and, uh, and it was a clash of cultures. And in some ways they, they really connected with the South and some of the musicians uh, and in some ways, they tended to uh, rub against the crowds or the authorities or the promoters. Anyway, when they came to Nashville for the first time, they played Cantrells, which I guess at that point was a still burgeoning but thriving new wave punk alternative music club, probably before the term had really been coined. The funny thing with that is uh, NBC, the local NBC news affiliate, was doing a multi-part series, a heartbreaking investigative story on new music, quote unquote, which was their very strained and clueless attempt to understand the, the, as I say, the burgeoning new wave and alternative scene in Nashville. And so I think the newscaster was an NBC affiliate. Uh, Lonnie Lardner was this woman who was doing this five-part series. And most of it's up on YouTube, if you look. And they just, I guess one of the parts of the series was they were going to go to Cantrell's and see one of these typical wild and crazy bands playing. Well, the night they showed up, it happened to be the replacements making their Nashville debut. And uh, when you watch the piece, it's funny. She describes them as saying, uh, uh, this is not a club in New York or Los Angeles, but right here in Nashville, Tennessee, and it's Cantrell's. The band on stage are called The Replacements. I call them loud. They're so loud that they shut off their volume shut off our cameras, and you can see they're playing. I think they're doing Take Me Down to the Hospital, and it is so loud. And, and, and at that point, The Replacements were very loud, very early in their career with a constant battle with sound men and just driving people out of the room with their sheer volume. And they were playing so loud that this camera crew filming them, I guess somehow it short-circuited their mics, maybe even <laughs> dislodged their cameras. So, uh, you know, the, the picture just goes black and blank. Um, so that's just a funny thing. I saw that a few years ago, and uh, Jason and the Scorchers were the other band featured in that segment. And, uh, and of course, the replacements and the Scorchers became great friends. But it was just a coincidence, happenstance, that they happened to come to uh, Cantrell's that night and, and got the uh, full volume treatment from the replacements. <laughs> But that kind of be, was almost uh, symbolic of their relationship with the South, and particularly with Nashville. 
they became, as I say, good friends with Jason and the Scorchers, even though they didn't really share bills, but they were always, as Warner Hodges from the Scorchers said, they were always one week ahead or one week behind each other in the clubs. And when they would cross paths, it was generally a, a good time was had by all. And um, in fact, the guy that signed Jason and the Scorchers to EMI, Steve Verbalski, um, he was hot after the replacements. He was the main suitor other than Sire and Warner Brothers. He moved to Columbia in 84 and was trying to sign the replacements. So there was a kind of connection through the A&R world uh, with, with the replacements and the Scorchers. The funny thing about all that is Paul had his very uh, definite ideas about road behavior. Um, and one of the things he said that is now famous uh, or is, is becoming famous is, we're on tour, we're not tourists. And this was in reaction, I think, at one point, maybe Chris Mars and Peter Jesperson went to go see a museum uh, during a day. And, you know, frankly, for those early years, they didn't have much time or luxury to, to really do anything anyway. But, um, but that was the thing. We're on tour. We're not tourists. So it was always the idea of we're either going to be at Soundcheck or drinking at the bar before or traveling to the gigs. And, you know, I don't know wh where that came from exactly, but I, I don't think he was into taking in high culture. I know... Um, Actually, not long after, I think probably around the same time in 85, they played in Nashville. The next night they played in Memphis at the Antenna Club. Uh, they were playing with a group called Agitpop. And I believe the plan was to go check out Graceland. And um, everybody, you know, Peter Jesperson was excited to go. And Bob, I think, ended up going. The guys from Agitpop. And Paul said, I don't want to go. I don't want to pay money to go see where he's buried. So they went into found a bar nearby that was open. This was early in the morning, about 9. And drank Budweiser's instead of, of going to pay their respects <laughs> to the king. So Ta Paul is not a, um, a very, I think it's probably gotten better to some extent now, but he's not a uh, inquisitive mind as far as travel and tourism and wanting to take things in. He's, he's really kind of a homebody uh, in a sense, or, you know, when he's on the road, I think it was all about the show. And in those days, the show and the party before and after the show. But uh, did Paul or anybody in the band have an appreciation for country music? Were they country music fans on any level? Oh, yeah. I think um, one of the funny things about it is the replacements, because of the scene they came out of and the period they came out of, probably thought of having very specific tastes. I mean, everybody knows they like Big Star and Alex Children because they wrote the song and certainly like the Sex Pistols and the Damned and, you know, some of those kinds of uh, earlier punk bands. Um, but Paul's tastes and the band's tastes were completely diverse. I mean, Paul grew up really listening to folk and blues. His older brother was friends with a bunch of folk and blues players. And so he was, that's what he kind of cut his teeth on. He was playing acoustic for years beforehand. And first time he ever went into a recording studio, he had won a radio station contest and answered a question about a Pink Floyd thing. And the prize was, uh, either get uh, some records or you get an hour of studio time at this local studio. So he went in there and cut the song and they played it on the local uh, public radio station. And as he described, it, it was kind of a Leo Kotke style instrumental. Uh, and so that's where his rooting was. And he loved in, in Minneapolis at that time. Of course there was Dylan had passed through the, the West bank scene, you know, the in dinky town by the university and it had, and that air scene still flourished into the seventies with kind of folk bands, but blues bands, uh, Kerner, uh, Ray and Glover and, uh, Mont Cranston and Willie Murphy and all that sort of stuff, sort of Chicago-styled blues in Minneapolis. And so he was big into that, big into Sonny Boy Williamson, big into Muddy Waters, all that, you know, uh, a little Walter. He was a blues guy in a sense. I mean, that was folk and blues were some of his early things. And then he found rock and roll, his own 
you know, his sister, older sisters are fans of the Beatles and Stones and Wilson Pickett and that kind of 60s music. So he got that as a real small child. He had sisters who were about 10 years older. So when the Beatles hit, he was like a five-year-old and saw these 15-year-old girls screaming their heads off. So I think he knew at that point that rock and roll was hopefully going to be in his future. But um, as he developed as a musician, he was first a lead guitarist. It was a lot of Southern rock. You know, he described Dwayne Allman as, as the guy who was really kind of the, the, the model for his playing in terms of making every note count. And I think when he, they, they became buddies with the guys in the Georgia Satellites, uh, like Rick Richards, that was one of the one of the guitarists they really bonded on was Sky Dog. So Paul loved Hank Williams. Hank Williams was one of the things that was pretty regular in their van, touring van at that time. And of course, they covered uh, Hey Good Looking and would do, you know, again, if you look back to the cover, some of which got released, some of which didn't. It was a lot of early rock and roll and country, you know, and Hank Williams style country souped up, obviously. And in that sense, I think they connected with the Scorchers and, and bands like that. They sort of were basically putting a, a kind of a punk velocity on old country songs, you know. Um, and he loved Jerry Lee Lewis. You know, Star Club record played that. And I, I have heard a rumor that there was a couple of, uh, when he would stay in Nashville, a couple of famous Nashvilleians that uh, they stayed with and whose Jerry Lee Lewis records went missing the next morning when the replacements were gone. <laughs> so um, I think we can maybe know who the culprit is there. And I think he liked some of the later Jerry Lee Lewis. And, you know, it's funny when I was uh, at one of the times I was at Paul's house interviewing him, I was kind of sneaking, not even sneaking, just looking at his CD stuff. And there was a lot of Randy Travis in there. And uh, early Randy Travis, I think he appreciates songcraft. You know, he loves Roger Miller. Roger Miller was another big, you know, they, again, somebody whose songs they covered even at the peak of the replacements. They would do Kansas City Star and do Wack Do and all kinds of stuff. Um, so, yeah, he knew, he liked the wordplay, I think, that was prevalent in Nashville songs. And he certainly liked, you know, understood the Hank Williams um, concepts too. I mean, a song like The Ledge uh, was very much inspired by the kind of uh, some of the Hank Williams more ghostly suicide type songs. And then later, um, the replacements would come back to Nashville a few times. Most memorably in 1989, they came back on the tour they were opening for Tom Petty, summer tour. And uh, it was, uh, if you read in the book, it was a pretty difficult tour. It it actually kind of broke the band's uh, heart and soul and spirit, that tour, because they thought they were on the cusp of stardom. And they started playing these opening sets for Petty, thinking this was going to be a good way to expand their audience. And in fact, it just pointed out to them that they were, as Paul put it, maybe not made of the stuff that uh, makes popular music. The, the the crowds were, they tried to impress the crowds at first. And, and then failing that, they tried to antagonize the crowds. And then after that, it just became a kind of weird drudgery or mind games with Petty's road crew, who they were butting up against the whole time. The Heartbreakers themselves actually liked the band um, at least up to a point. And Ben Montench was a big fan of the replacements even before they joined the tour and would go on to guess with them on stage and play with them on their next record. But mostly it was uh, it was a kind of a Batan death march that summer for the replacements playing these shows to oftentimes to no one. I mean, they were the opening band in high summer daylight hours as people are walking in and buying their T-shirts, buying their beer and not really paying attention. And the other thing is on that tour was probably Petty's in some ways, most, um, I mean, he's always seen as a kind of popular or populist type of singer, but that was post full moon fever. So he was getting more radio play probably than he'd had ever. And so the audiences were even more, uh, I think, just radio fans who probably weren't as open maybe as earlier petty audiences. And then, of course, they were opening shows in the South. And I think 
you'd have to agree that petty audiences in the South are even a different breed of animal uh, in, in terms of they're just much more very Southern, closer to Southern rock fans than, you know, Petty was ever, you know, for the moment he was placing kind of punk or new wave, they, they weren't into that side of Petty. So, <laughs> so the replacements coming on and doing their antics didn't really, uh, didn't really impress anybody. Um, and by the time they got to Nashville, it was, it was kind of a crazy situation. You mentioned that they were having a feud with Petty's roadies. You have any examples of what was going? Well, on? I think, uh, and I talked to Petty's uh, longtime guitar tech, Alan Bugs Widell, and I think the road crew. You know, when you get to that professional level of rock and roll, and you're the opening band, there are certain um, rules and politics you have to observe. Some uh, niceties, <laughs> and decorum, decorum. The replacements sort of didn't know their place uh, in, in that regard. I, as I understood it, one of the uh, major bones of contention was that Alan uh, or Bugs, when he was uh, you know, getting the guitars ready would be, let's say, smoking a certain uh, uh, herbal thing and blowing plumes of that on stage. And Paul didn't like pot smoke. And so I think at one point, uh, Tommy said, hey, you know, don't be doing that shit while we're playing. And he said, hey, it's the heartbreaker stage. I'll do what I want, you know. And so there was a little bit of that. And then there was a and then at one point, I think the replacements retaliated by spreading the rumor that they'd sprayed his weed stash with, uh, you know, Raid uh, bug spray. And then <laughs> apparently, you know, maybe one of Slim Dunlap's guitars accidentally got mishandled and broken. So it was this whole back and forth. And I think the thing that galled Petty's road crew after a while and, and probably mystified the Heartbreakers was that replacements were capable of playing unbelievably if they wanted to. But they on that tour, for most of it, they didn't because the crowds were either apathetic or uninterested or hostile or they were bored and they were dealing with their own internal stuff. And there was one night that uh, Paul said, you know, they, they we caught a couple of the Heartbreakers watching in the wings. And so he sort of winked at the band and said, all right, let's really give it to them. And they proceeded to play just an absolutely burning set, you know, unbelievable. And the next night, one of the roadies, Petty's roadies, said, man, you guys are amazing when you want to be. Why don't you want to be? And as Paul told me, he said, you know, I didn't really have an answer for him. So, I mean, that's in a way that's kind of the dichotomy of the replacements. I mean, they could have done, they could have always been that, but they didn't want to. And I think part of it is really interesting. I mean, for me, that's that the chapter about the Petty tour really says so much about the band and their experience in terms of, um, the music business and their profession. They got out and were on the road with Petty and they realized several things. One, that to be a successful professional rock and roller, it was about this kind of repetition and this kind of professionalism and a kind of show, uh, a pat show in a, in, a, in a sense. I mean, it doesn't always have to be that, but that's what they saw in Petty. I think they were like, you know, he was cracking the same jokes every night and doing the same sorts of things, which, and playing the same set in a lot of cases. And I think... Um, you have to do that because that's how your lighting cues are. And that's all, you know, that's part of being at that level. And that was just such anathema to the replacements where the thing with them is every single show was different and you never knew what it was going to be. And the idea that to succeed meant becoming that was, I think it just shattered any thought that they could do it. And the other thing was, I think Paul, you know, they'd been promised so much the replacements or there was so much expected of them. You guys are going to be stars. This next record's going to break. I mean, they heard that three albums in a row. By the time it got to Don't Tell a Soul in 89, it almost was true. They had a kind of top 50 single that looked like it was going to creep to the top 40 and become a hit and was getting played on MTV. And the record was selling about 300,000. Maybe it was going to go gold. And then, of course, it just died. And so that's that was also happening in the background when they got on the road with Petty. And as that's happening, as Paul has has made this effort to make a very commercial record and handed off the mix and come up with a big pop song and it's 
as that's failing, he's standing side stage watching Petty sing The Waiting as 15,000 people, you know, sing the refrain back to him. And I think that's when the penny dropped. And he said, you know, this isn't going to happen. It might not happen for me at all, but it's certainly not going to happen for the replacements the way we're constituted. And and I think that kind of uh, was the start of him wanting to split with the group, which he basically did almost immediately after the Petty tour was over. But then he was sort of walked back and talked back into doing another replacements record, even though it was mostly a solo record. So, um, so there was a lot of realizations, pretty dire realizations that hit the band that summer, but in a way it kind of culminated, uh, in almost a joking way in Nashville. I came to the Starwood, uh, amphitheater or Starwood, whatever it was, uh, I guess in the outskirts of town and they were playing and it was a hot summer, summer night. And, uh, Petty's, like I say, Petty, the band and the band actually liked the replacements. They were sort of a breath of fresh air. And so, and so did their wives and, uh, various kids that were around. They thought they were fun. And so they replacements kind of, it's been reported. They broke into the heartbreakers, uh, wives wardrobes, but they just, they, everybody was complicit, Jane Petty and all this stuff. And so they went, went out on stage in Nashville in 1989 to a, to a, uh, you know, pretty mainstream petty audience dressed in drag, basically, for the most part. And Paul, uh, for whatever reason, again, probably a little bit of the feeling that fish out of water, proceeded to spend most of the show goading the audience with his uh, wrestling heel routine, uh, <laughs> swigging, fr- swigging from a bottle of Jack Daniels and then holding it up to the mic and saying, this is the only good thing that's ever come out of Tennessee. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a good way to get uh, a bunch of uh, you know uh, summer concert goers who are probably pretty drunk themselves riled up, uh, and then I think they proceeded to play of you know go into their covers routine and played like a fifteen minute. Walk on the Wild Side, which I believe uh, ended with him asking, Paul asking Chris Morris for a drum solo, and his response to that was just to throw the sticks into the audience. So, um, or maybe that happened somewhere else. Sometimes these stories tend to blend, but it's in the book. But, uh, and then, and Paul, when he was on stage, he said, you know, uh, Tom Petty said, if we, uh, if, if we fuck up again tonight, then we're off this tour. And, and, you know, he said, well, we don't care. And, you know, if you have the guts, boo, you know, to the audience, of course, they booed lustily. And uh, that that started the rumor that the replacements had actually been thrown off the tour. No such thing took place. What happened is, um, what gave rise to that was these comments he made on stage. And this has become a big thing. Sorry, people have uh, people have said, oh, yeah, the replacements got thrown off the tour, got thrown off the tour. And it never happened. I mean, they did try and get thrown off the tour, but Petty didn't give them the satisfaction of actually bailing. They had to see the thing through to the bitter end. But um, the next night, they were actually scheduled to play one of their few headlining club dates on that tour. So they played Louisville by themselves, and Petty you know, played somewhere else with somebody else opening up. So that gave rise to the whole notion that the replacements had been kicked off the tour. But a couple of days later, they were back on the tour all the way through the, its conclusion in September in Canada. I asked Warner all the times he saw them and he said, well, yeah, you know, the Petty show, which became, you know, something of instant legend almost. Um, Warner on, uh, came to the show. He, he was on the list. He was with a friend of his, I guess, who went right through and he went to, through the turnstile and they stopped him because Warner is his, his, his penchant uh, was dressed in his, you know, 
flowing finery, looking good, looking sharp, wearing his boots, but also wearing his spurs with his boots, which he still wears. I just saw him about a month ago play with Dan Baird, and he's still rocking the spurs. And apparently the security at the Starwood stopped and said, you can't go in there with that. And they sort of whisked him out of the venue. So he spent, as he put it, the show sitting on his car, drinking a beer, listening to uh, the replacements insult the state of Tennessee as he, you know, <laughs> sat in the parking lot uh, jangling his spurs, I guess. So. <laughs> Atlantic go that REM tour on its way to Indianapolis and a, a gay bar in Indianapolis. Of course. A buddy of mine who used to film shows showed up to film REM huh? and the opening band, who he didn't know who they were, kept okay. begging him to film them. Oh, really? And he said he only had enough battery life. Wow. To uh, you know, film REM, so he refused to do it, and then later found out he regretted that. Yeah, and there's not a lot of film on him from that era, and I, I suspect it would might have been Jesperson who was their road manager asking that because Paul was always against them being recorded. Certainly, audio. He was paranoid and became more paranoid later about bootlegs. Um, but uh, yeah, that's uh, that's funny that uh, somebody would have uh, would have missed that opportunity. I guess uh, one of the funny things I don't know if, if this would make any sense. They played in Indianapolis, I believe, or in Indiana a couple times where Tommy said there was this weird venues. One time they played in the back of a vintage store. And then one time he said, we were talking about all these gigs. There were some opportunities that they had turned down out of pride later on in their major label career. Warner Brothers wanted them to play a shopping mall or something. They said no. And years later, Tommy said, well, we played a Taco Bell in Indiana once. So I don't know if that's <laughs> actually true or he was exaggerating. <laughs> but... They're behaving badly mm -hmm. in all these different situations. Where does that come from? Why are they? Why is that? Well, I think that was really the question for me and why I wanted to do the book. Yeah, I'd heard and we've all read and know about uh, handed down like folk legends, all their stories of their behavior and their antics and the chaos that they sort of caused during their career on stage and off. But my question had always been, well, okay, that's fascinating and funny and entertaining, but why? Why were they doing these things? And I think as with most uh, people's lives, it goes back to some fundamental rooting, childhood experiences, family environments, the places they came from. And I think that's particularly true with the replacements because for me, part of the appeal, and I think part of the appeal for a lot of people is who the replacements were as people was so present and so a part of what they were as a band. There wasn't a whole lot of separation between the, the replacements, you know, as a group and the replacements as people. And I think everything they were and all their experiences fed into that. And so when you look at their backgrounds, as I write about in the book, Bob Stinson came from a, you know, just incredibly difficult, horrible, abusive environment um, in ways that probably most of us can't fathom. And Tommy was obviously less directly subject to that, but part of that same environment um, in terms of physical and sexual abuse. Um, Chris Mars' older brother had been a schizophrenic at the time when he was a kid, diagnosed as such severe schizophrenic and hospitalized, institutionalized, um, at a point where that was, you know, verboten. You didn't talk about that. That wasn't understood the way it is now. And so that left a mark on him, that experience, his brother's experience. Paul came from a family where there was a lot of depression and alcoholism and I think, and, and cynicism about business, you know, from his father, he was a Cadillac salesman or sold Cadillac insurance and his family's experiences. It's like the things that everything that they went through kind of was imbued into them and was then imbued into the music and the way they behaved. Um, and I think fundamentally they 
None of them really, except for maybe Tommy, belonged on a stage. I mean, Paul was one of the shyest people you could ever meet. You know, he would say as a kid, I, I was the guy whose palms were always sweating, hoping the teacher wouldn't call on me in class. How I ended up on a stage, I don't know, you know, but I don't think that's entirely uncommon. Sometimes it's the people who are least suited to be on stage are the ones that end up in the spotlight. So there was some discomfort with that. There was some of this damage of their childhoods and, and just the experience of their youth that colored how they behaved. And fear is kind of the, the story, fear of success, fear of failure, fear of being judged and being rejected. That's in some ways maybe a Minnesotan concept, a Scandinavian concept. Very uh, Midwestern. Very Midwestern. And I think in Paul's case, Tommy says it in the book. He says, Paul was more comfortable saying, you know, I don't try and I don't care than, than really trying and somebody saying, I don't like you. Um, and I think there's proof for that because the times where they did try, as with Don't Tell a Soul making that record and kind of taking some risks, some commercial risks and sacrificing what they might have done to be successful, and it wasn't met the way they wanted it to, it didn't do what it needed, or going out and opening for Petty and not being... Uh, you know, revered as they had been every other circumstance in their career, every other show they played, you know, they didn't deal well with that. And so, uh, you know, that, that, those are psychological things about the people in the band and Paul in particular, I suppose, as to why they did some of those things. And some of it was the environment too. I mean, I, I'm not, and I hope it doesn't come across in the book that for all their antics, I don't think that was the sole reason why they weren't more successful in their time commercially. I think there were myriad reasons why they didn't, you know, have that big breakthrough. Some of it had to do with the fact they were a little ahead of their time in terms of radio wasn't ready for them. Alternative radio wasn't a force then. The business didn't know how to market a band like them, which they would learn just a few years later. Is it possible that they achieved way more than they ever could have hoped for in their own minds? It was just the team around them that thought that they should have done more? Yeah, I mean, listen, I think the problem in a sense was they didn't know what they wanted. And if you don't really know what you want and what you're willing to do, then you're never going to get that. And part of the problem was, I mean, I talked to a guy last, uh, last night in Nashville uh, who was on the Warner brothers team, you know, he was part of the radio crew. And he said, you know, I knew all the people that work with them. And after a while, maybe it wasn't on the first record, or the second record or the third record by the fourth record. Most of the people at the company who were the people working their records said, I can't want this more than the band does. And I don't know, you know, I think the replacements, I think Paul wanted to be successful. I think he desperately wanted to have a pop hit, but it, but he wasn't willing to do all the other stuff you have to do or had to do at that time in terms of glad handing radio and doing all the, and, and label people. But, you know. Is a, is a huge hit his definition of successful? I think at that time it was because that was the only way to know. He wasn't going to know 30 years from now. When you get back together with Tommy and you're playing as, as the replacements, there's going to be 15,000 people singing these songs that weren't hits 30 years ago, and you're going to be validated by that. So I don't, I, I, I look at, I mean, the book is writing about them for the most part in that moment, you know, during that point in their career. And yes, there was disappointments there. And I think even when he started his solo career, the replacements were a millstone around his neck. And it was difficult for him as a solo artist trying to escape that shadow. And then even worse, seeing all these other younger artists uh, citing him as an influence and an inspiration and copying some of his style and some of his sound becoming zooming past him. So I think for a long time he struggled with that and he probably has some regrets, but I look at the replacements now as an incredible success. I mean, how, how can it not be when you see them playing to 15,000 people who are 
couldn't be happier to be there and singing these songs and for whom it's affected them more than any other one hit wonder or two hit wonder from the eighties would have, you know? So, but you know, at that time it was, it was everybody saying, you know, you're on a major label and they really were one of the first bands out of that specific era of American uh, independent rock that got signed to a label. And they had a lot of expectations because Paul was handsome. Tommy was handsome. The songs were good. He could write ballads. They were they were more commercial, certainly, than Husker Du or the Minutemen were ever going to be. And in some ways, really, probably were more commercial than R.E.M. Uh, on paper, you know. Uh, but it just didn't, you know, the, the, the all the factors that have to be in place and all the good luck that has to be there in terms of timing and picking the right singles and getting the right producer and and then doing all the sort of glad handing and major label dog and pony show you had to do back then none of it came together. So I always look at it as like, you know, yeah, they, theirs wasn't a victory for that moment. It was a victory for all time. And I think that's in the end, uh, you know, the replacements and their music are going to outlive Paul. I don't know. They're going to outlive us probably. And people are still going to go back to that song. And to me, that's more of a success than having a gold record from 1987, you know? I appreciate you meeting up with me and sharing some stories. Thank you for having me, Otis. Beautiful to have you on. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Bob for meeting me over at Fond Object here in East Nashville. You can find out everything you need to know about Bob at replacementsbook.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you could buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment, subscribe, and you'll get a brand new episode as soon as it's available. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.